It's good to see you all out there this morning. Glad you chose to be with us to come together and worship the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 45. Uh, We'll take a look at that in a minute as we uh, do our call to worship. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you to grab one of these cards. I hope we've got some some new ones. I know we we, we had several that got uh, taken last week. And the point here is that we want to fill out one of these cards um, and go through the, uh, the affirmations and then check on the back side that, yes, you do want to continue on as a member with us. Uh, no, you're not interested in membership or you would like to talk to a pastor about your spiritual condition. So the main point here is that we're just trying to clean up our membership role, uh, make sure we've got, it's a, there's a place for your address and phone number. We want to update our records so we can do better record keeping. Lots of different things that we're hoping to accomplish from that. So uh, if you're a member with us, uh, and you would like to continue on in that in that capacity, then please grab a card and, and fill that out um, and turn that back in. All right, so Psalm chapter 45, we'll just read all 17 verses this morning. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of the truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many-colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led uh, led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. One thing that, that you'll probably notice once Andrew preaches, but... Uh, verse 6 there, starting in verse 6, is a, a reference that the writer of Hebrews pulls out and tells us is explicitly speaking of Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Uh, and then even down into verse 7. And so we see that Christ is even represented here in this psalm as we, as we gather to worship him this morning. So will you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning and we, we delight in your word. But as we talked about in Sunday school, the truth is we, we don't always. And maybe that's the case for some this morning, God, where some of us can honestly say that your word is a delight, that we love your word, that it is uh, uh, health to our navel and marrow to our bones, that it's the, the light that lights our path so that we can walk. Some people here this morning may be in a place where your word seems like a weight, where it seems like darkness, where it seems, God, like a a dread or a drudgery to even open up something too weary or something too uh, obscure that can't be understood. There's lots of emotional responses that we might be having as we've gathered here this morning. Some may be thinking that they're too young. I I can't understand it. I'm, I'm five or six or seven years old or I'm 12 or 13 or 14. That's for adults. And God, the truth is, is that your word is for all people of all times and all ages in all conditions of life. And though it ought to be a delight to us, God, it's not always. And so we recognize and confess that, that your word is delightful. By its very nature, it is life-giving. 
but we don't always see it or experience it in that way. So we, we confess our sins. We pray for your forgiveness. We ask that you would help us to delight in your word. But Lord, we also pray that you would help us to, to cherish and, and see your word clearly and, and be fed and nurtured by your word. We're thankful, God, for the promises and the, the blessings and privileges that come to us through your word. But we're also thankful this morning for the visions of Christ that we see. We see him named as God here with a throne that lasts forever and ever, a scepter and a kingdom, and the scepter is uprightness. We see that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness, that he has been anointed by you, Heavenly Father, with the oil of gladness above all others. And so we rejoice that we belong to him this morning. We rejoice as, as your people that, that uh, we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into this kingdom of uprightness with a king who is glorious and good and gracious and kind and generous and loving and merciful. And we praise Christ this morning because he is all those things and more. And so we just ask God that you would help us to enter into a right frame of mind as we gather to worship, that we would praise him and glorify him and magnify him for all the glorious virtues that he possesses and help us to see him more clearly through song and more clearly through the word preached. We ask these things in his name for his glory and for our good. Amen. As they're doing that, I just want to mention um, uh, that we pray to remind you to pray for Pam. Uh, she's traveling. Um, she was going to a doctor in Cleveland, and then he moved to New York, so they're actually traveling to New York um, to have a procedure done, and I told her that we would lift her up in prayer, and so we're going to do that in just a second, but I want to encourage you to be praying for her throughout this week, her and Roger and, and Addie, uh, for the procedure, that it would go well, uh, and then also um, just for tr uh, safety as, as they travel as well. Um, and then one, one other thing, let's, let's remember um, Mark and Parker Phillips um, in Niger. And if you watch the news, you know that right now it's a very unstable region. Um, and they're there seeking to preach the gospel. And it's not really a good place for Christians to be right now. But they're being faithful to obey the command of Christ to go into all the world and make disciples. So we want to pray uh, that God would protect them and give them safety. But but even more than that, and I think what they would say is that the gospel would go forth and that they would see people converted. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we are grateful that although we stand under a great debt of sin that we could never pay, uh, your mercy was more and that you gave your son to die in our place, that you bore the wrath for us so that we, have, that, that we do not have to bear it. Lord, we thank you that we stand in a place of forgiveness of sins, that, that we can know right now this morning that we are forgiven and that we are right with you, that we are justified, that we have a home with you in heaven. God, we praise you for all of this. We, we're thankful this morning that we, don't have to, that we don't have to try to accomplish that on our own that we don't have to put a lot of effort into that to try to make ourselves pleasing to you, all the while being uncertain whether or not we're really ever forgiven. Lord, we, we pray that if today there's one here this morning who, who does not know the forgiveness that comes through Christ, who has not been justified by faith in him, we pray that you would open their eyes to believe and to trust in Christ this morning. Lord, we lift up Pam and Roger, and we're so thankful, Lord, that they're a part of our church. We just thank you for their faithfulness, uh, their, their kindness, the, the service that they uh, do in this church week in and, and week out. Thank you for them. We pray for Pam. Uh, we pray that you'd comfort them uh, in this time. We, we pray that the, the procedure would go well, that there would be no unexpected complications. And we pray for them as they're, they're traveling. Just give them safety. And uh, I pray that uh, although they're going for this procedure, that this would be a time of, of rest for them and a time that uh, they can look back as, as being a, a joyful time. And we do lift up Mark Phillips to you and his wife Parker this morning. God, it's unimaginable for many of us to think about leaving our home and the security and the comfort and the wealth that we have here in this country and leaving all of that behind to go uh, to, to preach the gospel. Lord, we're, we're thankful uh, that you do raise people up like that. We pray uh, that perhaps you would even work on 
uh, the hearts of, of people in this congregation, perhaps young people, that you would so burden them and so passion, give them a passion for the lost and for your glory that, that they would follow suit, that they would go and proclaim the gospels, Lord, that the nations uh, would praise you. But Lord, we pray for their safety. Lord, there's turmoil in this area. Uh, there's conflict between Christians and Muslims. There's unrest. And so we just pray that you would that you would give them security, Lord, that they would be able to continue to stay in this area. And Lord, they're actually there with many other missionaries that, that, that all of them would be able to stay there and continue to preach the gospel. God, we pray as we take up this offering this morning, uh, we pray that you would help us to be faithful and generous givers, uh, that the ministry here at Union Baptist could continue and could flourish, uh, but also that we would be able to support other missionaries like Mark and Parker. Thank you for, for their ministry. Protect them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Hebrews. We're back in the book of Hebrews this morning, chapter 1. We hope as, as we sing this morning, uh, just now completed singing, that, that he is our treasure. Uh, that really is the end and the goal and the aim of, of all that we do as John Piper has so, um, so emphasized and, and in a good way and rightfully I think that, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, when we treasure him. That's the end and the aim of all that we do. That's what worship is. It's, it's he, as he says, seeing and savoring the Lord. And that's the aim of what we're doing here this morning in preaching is to, to exalt Christ, to exalt the Lord and hold him out there that, that we might delight in him, that we might treasure him, uh, that we might enjoy him and, and praise him. So uh, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 and we're going to begin... Um, you just notice, I'll start at verse 4, we're really going to pick up in verse 5, but verse 4 kind of gives us the, the, the main point. He says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's the point of what he's saying is that Jesus is far superior to angels. And now he's going to go on and explain why it is that Jesus is superior to the angels. He says, or to which did of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've, I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we begin this morning. I just want to say that there are a couple challenges to a sermon like this and preaching a text like this. Uh, the, the first challenge, and I'll call it a challenge, I, I don't know that it really, that's the best term, but, but I'm going to put it that way. The, the first challenge uh, to a sermon like this is that uh, th this is a, a sermon that only Christians can really enjoy and appreciate. I talked about what worship is. It's, it's seeing and savoring Christ. It's delighting in him. It's having him lifted up and looking at him and seeing him and, and having joy as a result of, of knowing who Christ is and, and what he has done. You know, there are some kinds of sermons that even unbelievers can appreciate to, to a degree. Um, if you preach about marriage or sort of practical life issues, 
anybody can kind of enjoy some, some of those things. They, they might not listen to everything, but they can appreciate, you know, I want to have a better marriage. And so the pastor's preaching about marriage and, and maybe I don't get everything that he's saying about this Jesus guy, but, but he's given some helpful practical things uh, about marriage or about money or about these practical life issues, how to recently preached on how to deal with conflict. Everybody wants to know how to deal with conflict. So, so people, anybody can kind of enjoy some of those and, and appreciate that. But there are other sermons, there are other sermons uh, that focus on, on things that only true Christians can delight in. Sermons that focus exclusively on Christ, who he is, and, and his work as our Savior are, are sermons that are only going to be appreciated by those who believe in Christ, those who, for whom Christ is their Lord and their Savior. Believers delight in these truths about Christ because they, they know that they're not just fanciful tales. They, have, they do have an impact on our lives uh, but they, they are real, as real as anything in our lives, and they, they actually matter greater than, than anything else in our lives. And so that's one of the things about this sermon that we look at this morning. We're going to be talking about Christ and who he is, and what the Bible says about him. And if you don't believe in Christ, if you don't know Christ, it's not going to be very appealing to you. So that's the, the first challenge. The second challenge is this. It's going to require some, some mental work. Uh, there are a lot of quotations and citations from the Old Testament, and, and there's, there's an argument that's being built and, and a, a point that's being made, and it's going to take some time to, to unpack that and, and work through it and involve some, some, some learning. I, I once heard a pastor not that long ago of a megachurch who, who was really kind of shaming other pastors and said, you know, you, you guys that get up there and you just get into all this theological truth, he said, you don't need to do that. He said, people are not on some quest or some journey for truth. They don't care about that. They, they just want stuff that impacts their life. And uh, he was bold enough to say it, but actually a lot of pastors think that way. And that's why a lot of pastors just don't really teach the Bible. They'll, they'll, they'll give you some self-help and practical kind of stuff, uh, but they don't really dig into the scriptures because it does take work. And, and it's easy for you all to check out. But, but what we see is the result of that kind of thinking is, is really a, a Christianity that is devoid of really knowing the Bible. Every survey that you read and that you see when Christians are surveyed, they don't have a clue what the Bible teaches. You know, they're supposed to be following Christ and they can't hardly tell you the first thing about who Jesus is. Practical, basic doctrine about who Jesus says he is and what Jesus has accomplished that they couldn't even tell you, let alone be able to explain it from Scripture. So we want to do better than that, don't we? We want to know what the Word of God says. And, and I hope this morning that here you delight in Jesus Christ. You want to know him and you want to know who he is and what he's done. So I say these are two challenges, but hopefully for you, they're not a challenge at all. Hopefully you're able to stick with us this morning. Well, let's dig in. What is, what is the writer getting at? The main point is this. The main point is that Jesus is greater than the angels. That's what he says in, in verse 4. Uh, he talks about how the sun is the culmination, the, the pinnacle of all of God's revelation. We talked about that last week. Uh, but now in verse 4, he says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So that's the main point. Jesus is greater than the angels. And we told you that was going to be one of the themes that comes up again and again throughout the book of, of Hebrews. He's writing to them and encouraging them to persevere in their faith. Don't give up. Don't turn back. But the way that he does them does this is by continuing to show them Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the priest of the Old Testament. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better temple. He's better than all of these things. So continue to follow him and to live for him. Now, angels, why, why does he focus in on angels? Most of us here today are, have not really thought much about angels. We always knew that Jesus was better than angels, and so it's not much of a a challenge for us, but why did he focus on uh, angels? Well, angels in the Old Testament did play an important role. They were God's messengers throughout the, the Old Testament, so they often communicated from God to man on, on, on God's behalf over and over again. We, we think of the angels that came to Joshua or the angels that came to, to Abraham and then later Lot. 
Uh, in the New Testament, you think of the angels. When Jesus is going to be born, it's the angels who come and speak to Mary and to Joseph and say, this is what God's doing. And so, so they play an important part in God's plan. They are also given a task of protecting God's people throughout the Bible. So you think of Daniel when he's thrown in the fiery furnace. There are angels in the furnace with him, protecting him, or, or uh, rather the three Hebrew children. And then Daniel in the lion's den, the, the angels come and sh shut the mouth of the lions. Or even Lot, uh, when Sodom and Gomorrah is about to be destroyed, it's the angels who come and take Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah and protect him from uh, the, the citizens there who are going to do him harm. And so they play an important part in, in God's uh, plan. In the Old Testament, they're also called sometimes the sons of God. Uh, when you're reading the Old Testament, sometimes you'll see that little phrase, the, the sons of God. They're never called the son of God in the plural. They're, they're not the son of God as, as Jesus is, but they are sometimes called the sons of God. And they seem to be given some authority in, in ruling the world. So when we look to the book of Job, it says the sons of God uh, come to the Lord and, and present themselves to him. And, and that's when Satan comes and accuses Job. Uh, later on in, in the New Testament, in Ephesians, it talks about how that how that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces in, in, in heavenly places, evil forces of, of spiritual, evil spiritual forces in heavenly places. Let me just get that straight. Uh, and those are then fallen angels who, when Satan fell, the, these angels fell with him, and they seem to have some kind of authority and some kind of interaction uh, in, in the world. Finally, angels play an important part in, in God's plan uh, because they, they delivered the Old Testament law to God's people. So Stephen, in the book of Acts, when he's preaching in Acts chapter 7, he says this, you receive the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So the, the angels played an important function in even giving the law of God, sort of being a mediator uh, between God and man and giving the law to the Old Testament people. Paul also mentions that in Galatians 3.19, and you could, could look there. So what we see, though, is that, that while the angels play a prominent role throughout the Bible, sometimes the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and, and even in this period of time, uh, they were prone to give them too much honor and to even begin to worship them. Uh, and, and that was something that, that happened, we see in Colossians chapter 2, uh, that, that Paul writes to the Colossians and he warns them. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. So you could just see how these angels, they're, they're powerful beings, how they're sent from God. I, I mean, they're bright, they're, they're powerful, they, they play this vital role in God's plan. You, you could see how God's people would begin to honor them, and then that honor would even lead into to worship, kind of giving them a, a greater place than really they deserved, because they were, after all, creatures. MacArthur says this, uh, that the Jewish religious tradition began to, quote, embellish the basic Old Testament teaching about angels. The writer of Hebrews, therefore, was writing not only against the backdrop of true biblical teaching, but also against common Jewish misconceptions. So when he's writing about these angels, of course, angels had a prominent role in, in, in God's plan, but there were, was also in the backdrop, there were people who were worshiping angels and, and esteeming them too highly. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, Jesus is greater than the angels. You all are enamored with angels. You, you even hold them in high esteem and high honor. Some of you are even worshiping angels, but Jesus is greater than the angels. This was also important because there was, not from the Jewish tradition, but in the Greek tradition, there was a, a heresy called Gnosticism. And, and this uh, particular heresy, at least certain forms of it, taught that Jesus was really just an angel. God, he couldn't have been God. God would not take on flesh. God could not become a human being. And so some said that Jesus was an angel. So, so in the background, you've got some people who are kind of raising up angels and worshiping them. You got others who are saying, no, Jesus is really just an angel. They're bringing, they're bringing Jesus down, lowering him. And you've got the writer of Hebrews that's saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You shouldn't be worshiping angels. 
Jesus is the one whom you should be worshiping. He's not an angel. He is far greater than angels. And that's the point of this whole passage that that we're getting at. The point is simple. Jesus is greater than the angels. Verse 4 is the the theme. And then it runs and he he goes to the Old Testament and he cites passages that, that point out this is what Jesus has done. This is who Jesus is. And this shows to you that Jesus is greater than angels. So that's the, the main point. The second thing I want to just kind of lay the groundwork here is to talk about the writer's use of the Old Testament. I was glad that Jared read that passage earlier, and he said to you from the psalm that he read uh, that this is one of the psalms that is quoted. Do you, do you see in your Bible how uh, there's block writing? If you have a modern translation, you'll probably see that there's block writing, and then there's parentheses and 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 there's greater spaces, and all throughout here, from verse 5 all the way down through, really, verse 13, you just see one quote after another. Those are all quotes from various places, some of them the Psalms, some uh, perhaps from Deuteronomy, different places in in the Old Testament. So he says, Jesus is greater than than the angels. Let me tell you why. This is who Jesus is, and let me just cite all of these Old Testament passages that that talk about the greatness of of Jesus Christ. But there is a a problem, and I just want to mention this quickly. There's a a difficulty when we look to these passages that are cited from the Old Testament, and this is the difficulty. The difficulty is this, that none of those passages in the original context in which they were written were explicitly written about Jesus. Okay, so you go back and you read that psalm and you wait a minute, Wait a minute, that doesn't say anything about Jesus. That's talking about God in in the Old Testament. Why does the writer of Hebrews take this passage from the Old Testament, a psalm that's talking about God, and then just apply it to Jesus? Or other passages, you go back and wait wait a minute, this passage is talking about David, King David, in in the Old Testament when God made him the king. Why Why would the writer of Hebrews take that passage that's clearly talking about David and then just say it applies to Jesus Christ. And I'll I'll say this, I think there are two assumptions that the writer of Hebrews is working on that validate his use of the Old Testament in this way. How can he do that? The answer is this, that the writer of Hebrews is writing with two assumptions about who Jesus is. The first one is that Jesus is the Son of God. He's writing with that assumption. Jesus is the Son of God. That is, he is truly God. And because Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus himself truly is God, when we go back to the Old Testament and we see passages that are talking about Yahweh, that are talking about the Lord in the Old Testament, we can take those and we can freely and and, and rightfully apply those to Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. And, And he's working on that assumption. The second assumption is this. Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, prophecies and promises of of a coming Messiah is given. And the writer of Hebrews is assuming Jesus is that Messiah. So when we go back to the Old Testament and and we see see verses that talk about the Messiah or we see pictures that foreshadow what the Messiah will do, we can freely and rightfully then apply those to Jesus Christ. And I think that's what the, the writer of Hebrews is doing. In this way, this is really just a reaffirmation of what we said last week. Jesus really is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Everything that that Yahweh, everything that the Lord in the Old Testament revealed himself to be, Jesus is. Everything that the the Old Testament pointed forward to in terms of a coming salvation, in terms of a, a coming Messiah, Jesus is that. God spoke in many different ways and and, and many different times, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. And his son is the the culminating point of all of those things. So he's operating on those assumptions. Jesus is God, so I can apply passages that talk about God to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, so I can take messianic passages from the Old Testament and I can apply them to the son, to, to Jesus. And so that's kind of some foundation work that we need to understand these texts. 
What we see here this morning, his, his main point is this. Jesus is greater than the angels because he is the eternal, unchanging creator and king of all things. Jesus is greater than the angels because he is the eternal, unchanging creator and king of all things. So I just want to take those two main headings that I just mentioned, the two assumptions, Jesus is God and Jesus is the Messiah. And I want to look and walk through these verses and just show you that that's what what he is talking about here. First, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. You saw in verse 3, and we mentioned it last week, we didn't really deal with it too much, but in verse 3 he says, he is the radiance, talking about Jesus, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact representation of God. In other words, what we said last week is that everything that makes God who he is, Jesus is. There's no difference. There's, there's no distinction in terms of, uh, uh, of their character and, and of the essence of their being. Whatever you can say of God, you can say of Jesus. And we can see the writer of Hebrews actually doing that very thing. So if I were to ask you this morning, who created the world? We, w- we would all say, right? God created the world. Did anyone else create the world? No, only God created the world. There's, there's one creator. And yet what we'll see in this passage is that, that the writer of Hebrews applies passages that talk about, G, about God being the creator. And he says, that's who the son is. The son is the creator of this world. So you look at, at verse two, for instance, of, of this passage, back at really what we looked at last week. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, that's his work as Messiah, but then notice this, through whom he also created the world. He created the world through his son. And we see it in verse 10 as well. And this is, I believe, the one that that Jared cited earlier from the Psalms. He says, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Do you see the the point he's making? It goes all the way back to verse 5. He's saying all of these things are things that God said to the Son. Look at verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say any of these things that we're going to look at? He didn't ever say these to the angels. The angels weren't part of what those who created. They They weren't there in the beginning. God created them. They weren't involved in the act of creation. So God never said this to the angels, but God said to the Son, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You see, the the writer of Hebrews is saying, God said this to his Son. You're the one that laid the foundation of, of the world. In other words, he's saying that, that the Son is the one who created all things. So he's taking something that is clearly an act of God, and he's saying this, this is what the Son has done. This fits with other passages that we find in the Bible. Colossians 1.16 says of, of the Son of Jesus, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The son was involved in the act of creation. John chapter one says the same thing. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is greater. The, the, the man who lived 2000 years ago The man who died on the cross and who rose again was not just a mere man. He was not just a mere mortal. He's the son of God. He is truly God. He is actually the creator of all things is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So Jesus is greater. He's not part of the creation, but he is the creator himself of, of all things. What this means is that while the angels, yes, they're glorious, And they are powerful beings, and yes, they play an an important and a unique work in in God's role, yet they are still part of the created realm. Angels were created by God. On the other hand, Jesus stands outside of creation. He stands outside of the created order and is himself the cause of creation. Therefore, Jesus is greater than 
the angels. When we go back to the Old Testament, it is clear. God, God, God makes it unequivocal that I'm the one that created and no one else created. We see that in Isaiah 40, and, and there are several passages there. Isaiah 40, verse 12, just listen to these uh, verses. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Here he's using poetic terms to say, is there anyone who's done these things? Is there anyone who's moved these mountains, who shaped these mountains? He goes on to say in verse 25 of Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling all of them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Do you see how God is distancing himself between everything else in this universe? Who are you going to compare me to, God says? I'm the one who, who holds the mountains in my hands. I'm the one who calls the host. I call the stars by their names. Who are you going to compare me to? There's no one like me. And yet here the writer of Hebrews is saying, that's the son. That's the son. God the Son is the one who created these things. He's claiming that the Son is God. Not only is Jesus the creator of all things, but, but he's eternal and, and unchanging. So you see in verses 11 and 12, you created this world, but this, this world will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. That's Jesus that we're talking about. He's the one who, who will have no end. He's, he's eternal. He's, he's unchanging. He's not this way one day and, and another way the next day. He's always the same. He's unchanging and he's eternal. Listen, those, those are attributes, again, that God says are his alone in, in the Old Testament. He's the one who's eternal. He says, the psalmist says in Psalm 102, my days are like a, an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. I'm, I'm a human being and I, I wither away. But you, O Lord Yahweh, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. God alone is eternal. And yet the Son is eternal. God alone is, is unchanging. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie or the Son of Man that he should change his mind. I, I'm not a man. You all change your mind all the time. I change my mind all the time, right? Today I think this. Tomorrow I think something else. That's the way we are as human beings. God said, I'm not like that. I, I'm not like that. I don't change my mind. And here it, it, it says of the Son, as well, that he is unchanging. You are the same. You see this in verse 12. You are the same, and your years will have no end. Christ will never change. The writer of Hebrews applies both of these to Christ. In Hebrews 9.14, it says that, that Christ offered a sacrifice through the eternal spirit. He offered himself. He's eternal. Christ is eternal. The one that we worship is eternal. And in Hebrews 13, 8, one of, the, one of the greatest verses in the book of Hebrews, or one of my favorite, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, when, when the writer of Hebrews says that, that he's unchanging, he's claiming that Jesus is God. This is the one that we worship so Jesus is God, but secondly, Jesus is, is the Messiah. He's the, the promised Davidic king, the king like David from, from the Old Testament. And we see this in, in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Here Jesus is referred to as, as the son, as this king, the son of, of, of David, what, what you need to understand is that in the Old Testament, oftentimes, uh, the, the very important people uh, were called the Son of God. Uh, and so what I mentioned already that angels sometimes were called the sons of God. They were ministers who, who did God's bidding, and God sometimes referred to them as, as his son. Israel itself 
is called the son of God. And then this is the third one. When God appointed David to be king, God referred to David as my son. In fact, that's those those passages that we see. One is from Psalm and one is from the the account in 1 Samuel when, when David is installed as the king over Israel and God refers to him as my son. The king of of God's people was called the son of God then. What we're seeing here is that the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Not only is is Jesus God, he he is eternal, he's unchanging, but he's also the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He's the king, the son of David, who would rule and reign over God's people. We see that in in verse 4 when he says, that, that Jesus had inherited a, a name, or we might think of that better as like a title. He, he inherited the title son, uh, and, and that was a more excellent name than the angels had. This was something unique to his humanity. You might say, well, wait a minute. How could Jesus inherit? How could the son of God, he's the eternal son of God. How could he inherit the title son? And, and what we need to see uh, is that this is something that is unique to his humanity. Jesus was eternally the son of God. He didn't become the son of God. But when he took on flesh, he became the son, uh, that is David's son, who is the king of God's people. David was called the son of God. And when Jesus comes as the Messiah, now he is referred to as the son of God as well. Meaning that he, like David, is going to be the king of God's people. Why would the eternal son of God inherit the name son? Well, the answer is that when God appointed David king and called him son, when when God called David his son, he did so in anticipation that one day his greater, the, the true son of God, would come and rule over God's people. You see, Hebrews 1, again, told us that, that Jesus is the culminating point. He's, he's the pinnacle that everything from the Old Testament was pointing forward to him, even David being king. And so God said, look, I'm going to rule over my people and I'm going to make David king. But, but that was just a small glimpse of what one day would come when the true son of God would come and rule over his people, the, the son of David. And that's what Christ is. God was showing that I'm going to rule over my people by my son. That is in the Old Testament. That's what he was showing. And David, in a a very limited way, did that. But this was always simply a shadow of the greater reality, namely that God would rule over his people by his true son, Jesus Christ. And we know that that happened with Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. He's coronated as the king of, over God's people. Jesus is great because he's the true son of God, the true king over God's people. And this king in verse six, we see is is one who's going to be worshiped. And again, this shows his superiority to the angels. Jesus as the king is an object of worship. So you see this in verse six. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship worship him now if you read your old testament you know that idolatry was forbidden strictly forbidden there was only one person who you were to worship and that was god right if you made images to any other being in this universe or stars or any kind of thing and worship that it was idolatry god hated idolatry and he forbid it over and over again but but what is unique when the sun comes into the world God tells his angels, go worship him, go go worship him. And we see that in in Luke chapter two, the angels come and worship this, this new, we just got done through the the Christmas season. We talk about the angels coming to the shepherds and worshiping uh, the the son, worshiping uh, Jesus in, in the manger. And all of that helps us understand again, that Jesus is greater than the angels. We would never worship angels. But God himself commands the angels to go and to worship his son. You remember John, maybe you don't, but in the book of Revelation, when John is having all these visions and angels are there showing him these visions and and John is so overwhelmed. There's an angel there and, and an angel is 
so bright and glorious that John falls down to, to begin to worship this angel. And you remember what the angel does, right? He says, John, get up. I'm a servant. I'm a ministering spirit just like you. I'm a, I'm a servant of God just like you. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. And so it's, it's amazing then that when Jesus came into the world, that God would command his angels to go and worship him. Jesus then is, is the object, as the king of God's people is the object of their worship. And then finally, we see that Jesus uh, is the king of, of a great kingdom. And, and we see throughout these verses, we talk about him being the king, but, but now we see the nature of this kingdom. We see, first of all, in verse 8, that it's an eternal kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. He says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is a, king, this is a kingdom that's not going away. Uh, Jesus is going to reign forever and ever. When he came to this earth, he died for our sins. He was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He's ruling and reigning right now, the Bible says, until his enemies are made his footstool. One day he's going to return and we're going to be with him and he's going to reign forever and ever. Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. You know, when you look back through, through history, we were talking about the, the Babylonians and the Persians uh, this morning in, in Sunday school. And, and no matter how great the kingdom, there's always an end to that kingdom. Whether you're talking about the Babylonian or the Persian uh, or, or the Roman Empire later on, even as we think about our, our own nat nation, if the Lord tarries, these great empires come to an end. But there's a kingdom that, that was inaugurated into this world through Christ, and it is an eternal kingdom. He's going to rule and reign forever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That might sound good, but it will sound even better when we consider the nature of this kingdom, that it's a righteous kingdom. In verses 8 and 9, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. All of those kingdoms that, that I mentioned were all very wicked and sinful kingdoms. There was a lot of oppression. There was a lot of injustice, even, even in our country, even in our day and time. Wherever you go in the world, there's, there's oppression, there's injustice. But the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, it's an eternal kingdom, but it's a kingdom that is just and righteous. Don't, don't you long to live in a day? I, I, I talk to so many people that, that are just so disgusted with, with politics. No matter what side you're on, the, the common theme that, of people that I talk to is you can't trust any of them. They're all out for their own. They, they, none of them do exactly what they ought to do, right? And, and there's a disillusionment that comes with the kingdoms of this world. But the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is a kingdom of righteousness. He's going to rule and reign with justice. What a day that will be when we see Jesus, our king. Verse 13, we see thirdly that this kingdom is a victorious kingdom. Verse 13, you see this, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The kingdom that Jesus is bringing is a kingdom that's going to bring down all other kingdoms. In the book of Revelation, the, the, one of the visions that's given, uh, the angel says, the, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. These kingdoms are all going to be put down. All of these unrighteous kingdoms are going to be put down and Jesus is going to rule and reign forever in a victorious, righteous kingdom. So what should we do with all this? I said there was a lot to this. It was going to challenge you to, to stay with us and, and, and walk with us through these verses. Uh, what, what should we take away from this in, in terms of application? Well, there, there's two things. One, we should worship Christ. A passage like this, as you consider this man who lived 2,000 years ago, who was truly a man, he was also truly God. He's eternal. He's unchanging. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah that God has been predicting for, 2000, for thousands of years before that. 
So we ought to be led to worship him. Do you believe that this morning? I said only Christians could, could, could exalt. Only Christians could delight in a sermon like this. If I, if I were to get up here today and give you 10 principles for a better marriage, any of you could be like, yeah, that's good, that, that's helpful. But a sermon like this that exalts Christ, he's the king of kings, he's the son of God. Only people who truly believe that are able to, to delight in that. So do you delight in him this morning? Do you see him as glorious? Do you see him as great and as worthy of your worship and praise? That should be our response this morning is to worship him. But secondly, our second response is this, that we ought to listen to him because of who he is. That's, again, the theme of the book of Hebrews. All the way through, what we're going to see is persevere. Don't turn back. Don't, don't turn away from Christ. Don't lose your faith. Don't, don't walk away from Christ. Continue to follow him. Continue to serve him. Continue to listen to his voice and to submit to him. And the reason you ought to do that is because he's God. He's the son of God. He's truly God. And he's the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. So if you're here this morning and, and you're wavering and you're doubting in your faith, you need to look to Christ and you need to recommit to follow him. Don't be allured away to some other way or to some other thing or some other person to follow that. No, no, he's the utterly unique person as the son of God, the Messiah of God. So worship him alone and continue to persevere. Don't draw back. Pray with me this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We are thankful that you so love the world that you gave your, your only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We, we praise you this morning, O oh, oh Christ, that you are God, that you are the creator, that you are eternal and unchanging, and that you were willing to condescend, to come to this world, to be our savior, and then to be our king and to rule over us. I pray, Lord, there, there may be some here this morning who have never believed in you, who have never submitted and bowed their knee to the King, to Christ. And I pray that they would do that this morning. I pray that the words that are, are spoken in, in this chapter of Hebrews would be real to them, that, that it would be united with faith in their own heart. And I pray that you would grant them that faith this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.